بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد Alhamdulillah, this is the Ask the Imam session for the month of October. And I think this is the second time I've done this, where I've taken one question received anonymously and dedicated the entire session to answering it. Just one question. And for some people, that may be really exciting. And for others, that may be really boring. They may say, come on, man, get on with it. But certain questions deserve very detailed answers. And it's a crime that we live in the TikTok age where answers that go beyond 20 seconds bore people. So I'm giving this answer to put something there for reference in the future. Should anyone ask, this will hopefully be a good starting point for the question. And it's not the be all and end all, of the question or the answer to the question, but it's a start. So what is the question you ask? Someone sent anonymously this question. What are the Ash'ari and Maturidi schools of thought? Is it mandatory to follow anyone? So there's two questions here, obviously, but they're both on the same topic. And this is a very good and important question and instead of giving a short and quick answer that may leave a lot to be desired, I want to give a proper answer that addresses, first and foremost, what constitutes Islamic orthodoxy. And once we look at that, we can explore the answer in more detail. So this question comes up from time to time, not through the anonymous channel, but from people. People ask, and I want to give this comprehensive answer, insha'Allah ta'ala, wabillahi asta'in. So let us begin with trying to understand a little bit about the basics of Sunni orthodoxy, Ahlu Sunnati wal Jama'ah. And to answer this question, we want to start with the hadith of Jibreel alayhi salam. The famous hadith of Jibreel, when the angel Jibreel appeared in the form of a human being wearing very white clothing, with very dark hair, with no sign to travel on him, coming into the city of the Prophet ﷺ, sitting before him and placing his blessed hands on his thighs and then asking him three questions, actually four. And depending on how you look at it, they're actually statements in the form of questions. So he says first, أَخْبِرْنِي عَنِ Islam. Tell me about Islam. Then he says, after getting the answer, Sadaqt, you've spoken the truth. And then he asked him, inform me about Iman. And then the Prophet ﷺ answered that. And then he asked him about Ihsan. And then he answered that. And then he asked him about the last hour and some of the signs. So this hadith really encapsulates what Sunni orthodoxy is in all of its elements. Because in the first question about Islam, the Prophet ﷺ answers by mentioning the five pillars. The shahadatan, 
the salat, paying the zakat, fasting Ramadan, and making hajj for those who are able. So that part of the hadith is about Islam, which is linguistically about surrender and submission. And in its principial sense, Islam is the only possible relationship that the relative can have with the absolute. The finite can have with the infinite. Inna deena indallahi islam. Verily the deen in the sight of Allah is Islam. So that is the categorical Islam. But the specific Islam described in this hadith is the Islam known as the outward aspect of the religion. Meaning the ritual actions, the halal and the haram, all of these things, what the fuqaha call khitabullah al-muta'alliq bi-af'al al-mukallafin. The address of Allah to the actions of those who are charged with moral responsibility. So Islam here is what you do. Coming now to the second question, the angel Jibreel asks him about Iman. And the Prophet ﷺ described the convictions that we have as Muslims regarding Allah and His angels and His books and His messengers and the last day and the divine decree. So the angel Jibreel ﷺ in this question was not asking the Prophet ﷺ about the nature of Iman. He was asking him about the content of Iman. What is it we believe as Muslims? That's the second question. The third question was about Ihsan. And we know that the Prophet said, Al Ihsanu an ta'abudullah ka annaka tara fa in lam takun tarahu fa innahu yarak. It is that you worship Allah as though you see him, and though you do not see him, you know that he sees you. So linguistically, Ihsan is perfection and mastery. But in the specific sense mentioned in this hadith, it is basically bringing together Islam, the outward, and the Iman, which is the inward belief, bringing them together beautifully through actions of the heart that transform the soul. So that's the spiritual dimension of Islam. So we have all three of these that constitute what Islam is and therefore what orthodoxy is. So Islam in this hadith represents the sharia, the form of the religion, the moral responsibility, the taklif. It is the covenant that governs everything that we do and what we shouldn't do and should abstain from. So that's the component of Islam. Iman is the theology. It is what we believe it is what we have at the heart of our faith, our convictions that we have about our Creator, about the messengers, and about the unseen realm. And then when we get to Ihsan, that is the spiritual component. It is describing the spiritual exercises that awaken the heart. So it's the sound practice of Islam combined with sound Iman implemented and lived which therefore purifies the heart. So there's no real ruhaniya in Islam without proper foundations in our practice and our belief. So there's two terms. We have orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So orthodoxy is the, what you believe 
And then orthopraxy is what you do. The two of them have to be orthodox, meaning they are according to the way of the Prophet and the wider community. So these are the three dimensions of Islam. It's all basic. We all, we all know this. Each of these dimensions, Islam, Iman, and Ihsan, have been studied and discussed, and their details have been organized, and their principles have been derived and codified and elaborated generation after generation. Things develop over time. The language used to describe these realities develops over time. That's a natural occurrence, a natural development in any science. So there was no need in the earliest period of the Muslims, in the time of the Prophet wasallam, and the Sahaba, for them to study books of fiqh. They didn't need to sit in a class on fiqh. They didn't need to study Arabic grammar. They didn't need to study tajweed and makharj al-huruf. And they didn't need to study usul al-fiqh or mustalah al-hadith because they were in the environment where all of these things were right in front of them. It was in that second and third and fourth generation that these things that the Sahaba had present with them needed to be distilled and explained and organized. So I want to explore this a little bit so that we understand how we get from the way the Sahaba were around the Prophet wasallam and how they observed the practice of law to how we have fiqh today and then apply that to the other sciences as well. So in the study of Islam, if we say that Islam corresponds to the outward, Islam is synonymous here with fiqh. Islam here refers to the outward actions, therefore it's synonymous with fiqh. Fiqh is formalized, it has been expounded upon, our fiqh is very dynamic, it's been codified within the four existent legal schools in Sunni Islam, the schools of Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, Imam Shafi'i, and Imam Ahmad. And these aren't the only Imams of our Ummah, but the other Imams who had great schools of law. Their schools were not properly preserved, or they were incorporated within these other schools. So what we have are four legal schools that are basically the byproduct of the collective effort of those generations, right? That's the study of fiqh. Now, in the domain of iman, that corresponds to theology, aqidah. So aqidah, or belief, concerns the immutable truths. And likewise, these things were codified and arranged and discussed in a way that corresponds to revelation, to wahi. And what we have for fiqh, we have for aqidah as well. Just as you have in fiqh the madhab of Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, Imam Shafi'i, and Imam Ahmad in law, in aqidah you have something similar. And they are represented by two main schools, and we can add a third one as well. Though those three schools are 
the school of Imam Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari, Imam Abu al-Mansur al-Maturidi, and Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. So these three Imams represent really the codification and arrangement and elaboration on different approaches to understanding the core theology of Ahl-Sunnah. That's how we look at it. And we'll get to these three later, inshallah. And the study of Ihsan, we can say the same thing, right? It's been codified. So each of these three sciences have been well-defined and developed and transmitted to thousands upon thousands of scholars for the past 1400 years from the time of the Prophet ﷺ up to our own times. And I keep using this word, codified, which means that it's been arranged and organized and explained in a very sequential and methodical manner. And we should understand how that happens. If we look, for example, at fiqh, law, in law, we often speak about the four madahib. Let's look at one of the imams, Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah ta'ala. Imam Abu Hanifa was an imam in fiqh. He was also an imam in aqidah. And the Maturidi school is actually the school of Imam Abu Hanifa in aqidah. But Imam Abu Hanifa was an imam in law. Did he author fiqh? He's not the author of fiqh. Any more than Imam Shafi'i is the author of fiqh itself, or Imam Madik, or Imam Ahmad. He and his students, who were also great mujtahids, spoke and wrote about the issues of law in a very formal way, and they applied the principles of law to many different areas to derive principles to apply to new issues, and these things became fleshed out in that early period. So fiqh in the school of Imam Abu Hanifa was taking what they received from the generation of the tabi'un and the sahaba who received from the Prophet ﷺ and the principles of understanding language, the Arabic language. So we don't say that Imam Abu Hanifa was the author of fiqh. If you look at fiqh and all the, the terms used, did the Prophet ﷺ use the terms used in the books of fiqh? Did he use the terms qiyas or istihsan or istushab or umum al-balwa? All these legal terms used in usul? He never used these terms. The Prophet ﷺ never used the term aqidah. He used the word fiqh, but it had a slightly different context. It meant something more encompassing than just the law. But he never used these terms. And do the fuqaha differ among themselves on subsidiary branch issues and more deeper and complicated questions? Absolutely. So they're not the author of fiqh, but they are elaborating on what is found within the revelation. And they differ on subsidiary issues and even more detailed complex issues. The same thing applies to tajweed. Who is the founder of Tajweed? Does anyone know? Who is the wall there? The founder of the science of Tajweed? Who? 
<laughs> right, you said Rasulullah Well, if that's true. If we take it with that meaning, it means that every science is founded by Rasulullah sallallahu because it's all, yeah, it's all derived from him, alayhi salatu wasalam. Well, the first to recite the Qur'an with tajweed and tartil was Rasulullah sallallahu So in that sense, he is the founder. In the same way, he's the founder of fiqh and every other science. But in terms of the codification and organizing of the principles of tajweed, the founder of the science of tajweed is said to be Abu Umar Hafs ibn Umar al-Duri, Others say it's Abu al-Aswad al-Du'ali, and some say Khalil bin Ahmed al-Farahidi. Right? So there's some difference of opinion about who exactly did it, but there is a founder, there's someone who started to organize these principles later on. Can we say that those individuals made up Tajweed? Of course not. They didn't make up Tajweed. They're merely elaborating on what is already there but not put into an organized form. And because they're doing this as a collective effort, they're going to get into very detailed areas where they're going to inevitably differ with each other on certain areas. Did the Prophet ﷺ use the terms used in Tajweed? Did he use idhar and iqlab and ikhfa and tafkhim and tarqiq and all these terms? No, he didn't. Did that stop the ulama from using the terms to elaborate on something that already existed? Yes, it didn't stop them. They felt free to use these terms because the aim was to organize the science so that people later on could learn it because they are, we're now two, three, four generations now after the Prophet wasallam. So they're not there hearing it directly from him Do the Imams of Tajweed differ with each other over some of the finer points? Yes, they do. We can say the same thing for Nahu. Don't worry, I'm not going through all of the ulum, just a couple. Grammar. Who founded grammar? Who founded the science of Nahu? Some say it was Imam Ali radiallahu anhu. And others say it was Abu al-Aswad al-Du'ali, the same one said to have founded Tajweed, because Tajweed is actually one of the sciences of Arabic. Because it's about elocution, pronunciation. So at any rate, can we say that either Sayyiduna Ali or Abu al-Aswad al-Du'li invented Nahu? They didn't invent Nahu. Grammar already existed. It just wasn't organized and explained in this particular format because there was no need for that. In the time of the Prophet ﷺ and before his time, the Arabs were a relatively isolated people, so they preserved the Arabic language. And for anyone growing up in Arabia, they had the grammar through, not through uh, a grammar school, not through textbooks. They had it through malaka, just this natural aptitude that arose from being in that pure, pristine environment where the language wasn't corrupted. And one of the reasons, if not the reason, for the founding of Nahu as a science was the fear that Arabic would get corrupted as more and more people became Muslim from outside of Arabia who started to learn Arabic, but because they hadn't mastered it, they were making certain mistakes. 
that would have changed the meanings of the Qur'an and how people understand it. So this science was founded not by the Prophet ﷺ, but by people who came after him. Did the Prophet ﷺ use the terms used in grammar? Did he say that this and that is morfur or mansub or majroor or majzum? Did he use tamiz or hal or istithna? No, didn't use the terms. But the terms were describing a pre-existing reality that the people already had, but they didn't need the words for these things because they already had them. There was no, there was no da'i, there was nothing to call for that, nothing to require that. But when the requirement was there, these scholars coined these terms. Did the scholars of grammar differ over one, with one another over certain issues in grammar? Absolutely. You have two or three madahib in grammar like you have in fiqh. You have the Basrans and the Kufans. You even have the Baghdadis to a smaller extent. So you had schools of thought in grammar issues as well. So we mentioned this in relation to law, to tajweed, to grammar, only to illustrate this phenomena of sciences that didn't get elaborated in the time of the Prophet ﷺ because there was no need. But when the need was there, scholars came together and elaborated on these sciences and distilled what was already there into principles and subsidiary issues and they fleshed out the details and wrote about these things in a way that would help the people in their time. That's the same way we have to frame Aqidah and the schools of Aqidah. You know, why are there schools in Aqidah? Well, why are there schools in Fiqh? Right? There's a significant difference between Fiqh and Aqidah in terms of how we learn them and the consequences of error in them, for sure. But the way that these things get elaborated and developed over time are very similar. So, who founded the science of Aqidah? Who was the Wadir? Well, if we say that the founder of fiqh, well, it really is the Prophet ﷺ, but in terms of the usul and the principles, these are coming from the imams. If we say that the founder of tajweed was al-Duri or Abu al-Aswad al-Du'ali, and that the founder of Nahu was uh, Sayyiduna Ali radiallahu anhu, who is the founder of, of Aqidah, uh, as elaborated in this way, it would be Imam Abu al-Hassan al-Ash'ari radiallahu anhu, or you could say Imam Abu al-Mansur al-Maturidi. They codified and organized the principles of Sunni Aqidah in a time of great confusion. So, like we said for grammar and tajweed and fiqh, did he and those, his contemporaries like Imam Abu al-Mansur al-Maturidi, did they use terms for matters of belief that were not used by the Prophet Of course. Of course they used terms that were not used in his time. Did they have certain differences in certain areas? Yes, they did. And some of these, a good number of these, if not most, are semantic differences. Khilaf lovely. Some of them are substantial. 
but most of them are semantics. But they differed. So in short, Islamic theology as codified in that period was done by the efforts of Imam Abu hassan al-Ash'ari whose method of describing, defending, and elaborating Sunni Aqeedah was taken by those who received from him, great scholars, who in turn taught others, who in turn taught others, and then these things developed into a very systematic way of defending Sunni orthodoxy. And the same thing for Imam Abu al-Mansur al-Maturidi, who is way over Mawara al-Nahar, behind the Transoxiana, the basically Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, that whole region, the stands. The same thing developed uh, in around the same time period, right? Why did they do this? Well, for fiqh, we know why. We need to know how to pray and fast and transact. And for tajweed, we need to know how to recite the Qur'an. For grammar, we need, we need to know how to preserve our tongue from making mistakes in uh, our sentence structure, our syntax. Well, aqidah also, why did they organize aqidah the way they did? They did it because Islam demands three things of us. We have to define the content of our faith, what exactly we believe in. We have to show that it's possible in the mind to accept and that it's not absurd or inconsistent. And number three, we have to have reasons to be personally convinced by it. So the Imams basically elaborated their the Aqeedah of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah in order to define in a very detailed way the content of Iman as understood by the Sunni Orthodoxy. They established the proofs for the content of Iman in great detail and they defended the content of Iman against those who sought to undermine it. So our duty as Muslims is pretty much to recognize this and follow the command of Allah Ta'ala, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ ذِكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Ask the people of knowledge if you do not know. Now unlike fiqh, there's no taqlid in aqidah. You can't just say, I believe something because so-and-so said it. Now in fiqh you can do that. If you go to a qualified scholar and you ask them for a fatwa, if they are a person of taqwa and they inspire confidence, they can give you the answer and you don't have to know the background to the answer. You can just take that opinion and run with it. But in taqlid, in aqidah, you can't just say, I believe this about Allah because so-and-so said it. No, you have to have a higher standard for aqidah. Nevertheless, these imams elaborated the principles of our aqidah and defended those principles in great detail. And we take from those books, we take from the teachers who studied those books, and we learn our aqidah in that very systematic way. And that is found elaborated within the creedal works of the schools of Imam Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari and Imam Abu al-Mansur al-Maturidi. So much so that the scholars say that the Ash'ari al-Maturidi schools in Aqidah are the standard for mainstream Sunni beliefs. Now a person doesn't have to know 
that they don't have to say, I am an Ash'ari or I am a Maturidi. They just need to know their own aqidah in a basic way as a regular Muslim. It's just that their aqidah needs to correspond to what is elaborated in these scholarly efforts in these aqidah books that we receive from teachers, we receive from teachers, and we've learned in a systematic way, and we understand. Okay? So this is why the ulama say that Ahl Sunnah and Jama'ah is represented by these schools in Aqidah. Uh, not that you have to individually ascribe to one and say you're this or that, but you need to make sure that your beliefs are sound, that you understand things properly, and that they correspond to the Aqidah of Ahl Sunnah and Jama'ah. Now, as we said, both of these Imams, they defended and upheld and transmitted beliefs from the Quran and the Sunnah as understood by mainstream Sunni Islam in each generation before them, defending orthodoxy from two main extremes. Two main extremes. The extreme of excessive literalism and the extreme of excessive rationalism. And this is not the time or the place to go into what that entails, but that's what they were defending against. The extreme on this side of al-hashu with tajseem and the extreme of i'tizal of excessive rationalism and that is the way of Ahl-Sunnah al-Jama'ah that's my answer in a, in a nutshell but I don't want to leave you with only my words I want to give you the words of the great imams because as I sit here before you I always have in the front of my mind a a principle that if I ever say anything to you I have to have for it a salaf I have to have an authority someone from the tradition or lots of people from the tradition who say the exact same thing because I'm not sitting here bringing anything new I'm not cooking this up in my backyard and bringing it to you something fresh and unheard of. So I say that now because it applies to this and to any other issue. If anyone ever hears me in a class or in a khutbah ever say anything and they never heard it before, well, they should ask me for elaboration. And I always make sure, inshallah, that there's nothing I say except that there is scholarly authority before me saying it because I'm not some independent mujtahid sitting here before you. I am a naqil. I am transmitting to you what I've learned from my teachers, who learned from their teachers, and what is broadly within the tradition. So let us see what some of the great imams have said about this question. And we go to one of the great early imams, Imam Tajuddin al-Subki, rahimahullah. He is one of the great Shafi'i imams. And he says, and I quote, you should know that Abu al-Hasan, who is Abu al-Hasan here? Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari. You should know that Abu al-Hasan did not innovate a novel opinion or develop a new doctrine. He only confirmed the doctrine of the Salaf and defended the way of the noble companions of Allah's Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Ascription to him 
meaning why a person would say so-and-so fulan al-ash'ari, why are they ascribing themselves to him? Well, why does someone ascribe themselves to Imam Abu Hanifa and call themselves Hanafi? He says, ascription to him, Imam Abu Hassan, is only due to the fact that he was considered a spokesman for the way of the Saraf, and he held firmly to it and established proofs and evidence for it. The one who follows him in that and treads his path in barahim, in proofs and in arguments, is called an ash'ari. So the person is an ash'ari because they follow his methodology for describing, explaining, and defending the pre-existing aqidah of the Muslim community. Right? We go now to another great imam, Al-Hafidh Abu Bakr Al-Bayhaqi, rahimahullah one of the great imams, also a great Shafi'i imam. He is actually from the third tabaqa, the third rank of those who followed Imam Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari. Imam Ibn Asakir, the great hadith scholar and the author of the massive Tarikh al-Dimashq, he has a book called Tabyin wa Kathib al-Muftari, which is basically a defense against accusations leveled towards Imam al-Ash'ari. And he lists the tabaqat, or the levels of those who took from Imam Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari. The first level are those direct students. The second level are those who took from the students. The third level are those who took from the students of the students, where you have a verifiable chain. So Imam al-Bayhaqi, this great Imam and hadith scholar, to whom the entire ummah is indebted, and particularly, the Shafi'is, they are very much indebted to him for elaborating the madhab. What did he say? He says, speaking about the history of things, he goes, until the time came for our Shaykh Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari, may Allah have mercy upon him. He did not invent anything in the religion of Allah or bring a blameworthy innovation. Rather, he took the statements of the companions, the followers, and those after them among the imams regarding the fundamentals of the religion, usul al-din, and aided them with additional commentary and clarification and demonstrated that their beliefs and what the sharia brought in matters of aqidah are rationally sound. Contrary to the claim of the people of vain desires. So he goes on to say, his elucidations strengthened what was not previously expounded upon. So his way of explaining the creed, Aqidah, he says that his way strengthened what was not previously expounded upon. So a basic Aqidah that Muslims have, but it hasn't been defended. You know, think about this. Your beliefs can be sustained in a village without much thought or inquiry. But if you move to the, from the village to a city and you're surrounded by atheists and academia, you're going to need a lot more to defend your aqidah than what sustained you in the village. So that is the challenge that Imam Abu Hassan was responding to, responding to new challenges to Imam, uh, shubuhat, and arguments from different groups. So he says that he his elucidations strengthen what was not previously expounded upon 
from Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah and aided the beliefs of the past Imams, such as Abu Hanifa and Sufyan al-Thawri from those of Kufa, Al-Uza'i and others from Sham, Malik and Shafi'i from Ardul Haramain, Mecca and Medina, as well as those who tra- traversed their way in the Hijaz and other lands, such as Ahmad ibn Hanbal and others from the Ahlul Hadith, Layth ibn Sa'ad and others, and Abu Abdullah Muhammad bin Ismail al-Bukhari, and Abu al-Hussein Muslim ibn al-Hajjaj and Naysaburi, Imam Muslim, Bukhari Muslim, and the two Imams of the Ahadith, as well as the compilers of the Sunan, uh, the Sunan collections around which the Sharia revolves. May Allah be pleased with all of them. That's Imam Bayhaqi. Imam Bayhaqi is no lightweight. Imam Subki is no lightweight. We go to the words of Imam Abdul Qadir al Baghdadi, who is an author of a very famous work, Al Farq Bain al Firaq, a book on heresiology or the study of different sects, sectarian groups. He talks about the different sectarian groups that arose within the Muslim ranks. And towards the end, he mentions Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. He says, they are Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah from the people of Ra'i, of analogy, and the people of Hadith. So basically he's saying from the Hanafis and the Madikis and the Shafi's and the Hanbaris, excluding those who purchase vain talk, and the jurists among these two groups, as well as their Qurra, their Hadith scholars, and the theologians of Ahlul Hadith among them, all of them, he says, agree upon one central aqidah, they do not charge each other with dalala or corruption on account of the things in which they differ. So after enumerating them, uh, the great imams of aqidah from the time of the Sahaba and the Tabi'un and onwards, he goes on to say towards the end of this, then after all of them comes the Shaykh of Al-Nadar, of detailed rational investigation into the basis of Islamic Aqidah, the renowned Imam of investigation, Imam Abu al-Hasan Ali ibn Ismail al-Ash'ari, and he goes on to praise him and describe him. So that's what Imam Abdul Qadir al-Baghdadi says. Now, in the time that remains, I want to mention just two things. The first thing is that we, as Muslims, should have a good opinion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Husnul billah. And not have a bad opinion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We have a good opinion of Allah ta'ala that He preserved this deen, and that this deen was preserved and transmitted by upright, God-fearing scholars, generation after generation. We believe that the deen and all of its sciences were preserved and transmitted by great individuals. We don't have a bad opinion of Allah and think that people were guided for the first 300 years and then everyone became misguided for another few hundred years until one or two people popped up and then they were misguided again until 200 years ago. We don't believe this nonsense. We believe that the ummah has always had khair and that this deen and all of its ulum have been preserved and transmitted by great individuals outstanding, upright believers 
from Ahlul Sunnah and Jama'ah. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is that you will not find a single science from the sciences of Islam that is transmitted to us today except that it is coming to us from great Imams who were Ash'ari and Maturidi in their theological understandings. You won't find it. You will not find a single ijaza in the Qur'an al-Kirim that goes back to the Prophet without people who were Ash'ari and Maturidi in their creedal formulation. You won't find it. And this is a challenge. You won't find it. You're going to find some, you're going to find a lot of people in the chain, maybe even most. So I want to look at just some of these sciences and the great Imams who wrote the majestic and authoritative works on those sciences, who were Ash'ari or Maturidi. Let's start with Tafsir of Quran. You know, imagine a person says, you know, uh, I don't want this Ash'ari business or Maturidi business. I just want to go direct. Okay, well, you have to bypass all of this. Imam al-Qurtubi, all of these ulama were Ash'ari or Maturidi in their creed. Imam al-Qurtubi, Imam ibn Atiyah, Imam Abu Hayyan, Imam al-Razi, of course, he's one of the greatest of the theologians, Imam al-Baghawi, Imam Abu Layth al-Samarqandi, and Imam al-Wahidi, Ali al-Naysaburi, Imam al-Suyuti, and Imam al-Alusi, Ibn Ashur, who is from this 20th century, Imam Ibn Ajiba, Imam al-Sha'rawi of Egypt, al-Khatib al-Shirbini, and many, many others. Now, we don't mention al-Tabari only because Imam al-Tabari was a contemporary to Sheikh Abul Hassan. And when you look in the tafsir of al-Tabari, you see things that correspond to the creed and the formulations of Imam Abul Hassan. So we don't mention him, but he could be included in this list in the sense, but not through direct ascription to the Imam. He was his own authority. Look at the Hadith scholars, those Hufal who memorized the Hadith of the Prophet ﷺ with their chains and were masters in the Hadith sciences and transmission. Imam al-Daraqutni, Imam Abu Nu'aym al-Asfahani, Imam Abu Dhar al-Harawi, who actually took from the students of the students of al-Ash'ari. So he's actually in the third tabaqa. Abu Tahir al-Silafi, Imam al-Hakim, the compiler of the Mustadrak. Imam ibn Asakir mentions him among the second tabaqa. He studied from the students of Imam Abu al-Hasan. Then you have Imam ibn Hibban. You have Abu Sa'id al-Sam'ani, the author of Al-Ansab. Imam al-Bayhaqi, Imam ibn Asakir, and Imam Khatib al-Baghdadi, who's in the fourth rank. And Imam al-Nawawi, Imam Abu Amr ibn al-Salah, Ibn Abi Jamrah, Al-Imam al-Kirmani, Imam al-Mundiri, Imam Ubbi, Imam ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, Al-Imam al-Aini, Al-Imam al-Sakhawi, Imam al-Suyuti, Imam al-Qastalani, 
Imam al-Munawi, I can keep going on. Pretty much every major compiler of hadith and commentator on the hadith, they were Ash'ari or Maturidi. We get to the fuqaha, there's, there's just too many to mention. There's just too many. Imam Tajuddin al-Subqi, rahimahullah ta'ala, he mentions that they're all from the great, all from the, the four madahib, mostly within the Hanafi, Maliki, and Shafi school. And then among the Hanabila, you have, of course, the Athari or the Hanbali approach to things. But we're talking about the Ash'ari school, mostly within the Shafi'i and Maliki school, and most of the Hanafis were Maturidi and still are. We go to the scholars of Arabic. You see the same thing. The people who preserved the principles of Arabic in the rules governing syntax and poetry and literature and lexicography and the meanings of words themselves were great Ash'aris. One of the great Imams, Abu Mudaffar al-Isfarayini, he says that the general body of Imams in grammar and lugha, lexicography, the science of how the language works, from the people of Basra and Kufa were Ahl-Sunnah and Jama'ah, and there was not a single Imam from the Imams of Adab, of literature, except that they would censure and criticize the people of blameworthy innovation and were far removed from them, such as Khalil ibn Ahmad, Yunus ibn Habib, Sibawai, Al-Akhfash, Al-Zajaj, Al-Mubarrid, Abu Hatim, Sajistani, Ibn Durayd, Al-Azhari, Ibn Faris, and Al-Farabi. Uh, this is not to say that they were all necessarily Ash'ari in the very strict sense, but they took from that source and they had the same understanding. And you look at the authors of the dictionaries, it's the same things. From the various lexicons, uh, Al-Anbari, Ibn Sida, Ibn Mandur al-Ifriqi, Al-Jawhari, Al-Fayruzabadi, Al-Murtada al-Zabidi, these are all Ash'aris. Same thing for Sirah, same thing for the science of Sirah. If you look into the authors of Sirah and Maghazi and Tariq, you find they're also Ash'ari. Among them Imam Bayhaqi, Imam Abu Nu'aym al-Asfahani, whom we mentioned earlier. You also have Al-Qadi Iyad, Imam Al-Halabi, Imam Suhaili, Imam Qastalani, Imam Al-Salihi al-Dimashqi, and so on, and so on, and so on. So if we say that, yeah, that's just some other stuff, we don't know what that is. That's not the true Islam. Well, how, how did Islam reach us exactly? If you can't find a single science that's not connected directly to these scholars, then really, what are you working with? So the works of these imams are relied upon references in every science of Islam. So let's to go back to the initial question, all of this is a, a long-winded way to answer the question. Are we required to know our beliefs or, or, or is it okay to just parrot what we heard our parents saying? We have to know what we believe. We can't just be parent, parents repeating what we hear others say. The hands-off approach to aqidah, where a person does not learn their creed formally and systematically, is not going to work in 2022. Having this hands-off approach of just trying to slide through life without actually trying to know your deen, 
is not going to work in 2022. Iman will not be sustained by what would have sustained it in a village environment. Right? Iman al-Aja'iz, as they say. That works for the Qariya, the village, the Iman of the, the old aunties. It doesn't work in the modern world. You, you really have to learn your aqidah properly because everyone is oversaturated by things that attack the aqidah in media, in academia, in broader culture. Kufr ideologies are everywhere. So we have to have a very active approach to learning our aqidah. But to go back to the question, what matters, I think we've answered what is the Ash'ari Maturidi school. We didn't talk about the actual content, but that's, that's all here. The teaching aid, all these books. Uh, also the recorded classes that we have. Everything that we've taught here is basically a simplified form of a basic matan in aqidah. Al-Aqidah As-Sanusiyah Umm Al-Barahin. That's a basic Ash'ari text. So what matters is not whether you call yourself that or not. That doesn't matter. What matters is the content of your own iman and the implications of it, if it's sound or not. It's just to say that the tried and true way of understanding the creed is to learn it in a formal manner that is digestible, that, is, that makes sense. And that is done primarily through these texts authored by imams from the school of Imam Abu al-Hassan al-Ash'ari or Imam Abu al-Mansur al-Maturidi. So I'll close with a parting advice. For a person who just wants to know their basic aqidah, again, they don't have to call themselves Ash'ari or Maturidi. I think that's kind of cringe. You know, my name is Abu Fulan al-Ash'ari. Okay, who cares? Why, why do that? Just call yourself Fulan, right? Just, you know, ease up. You don't need all that. But you need to learn your aqidah. So what do you do? I would recommend to someone who's listening to this to study with any teacher who's qualified, who studied with teachers who, who have learned aqidah properly. Um, if you don't find any teachers, you can always go to module one of the Fard Ain program that we have on the YouTube channel. Module one is aqidah. So video two to 11 constitute the basics of aqidah that everyone should be knowing. There's also foundations of certitude. It, yeah, I'll give you a progression here. I'll give you a couple of ways. If all you want to know is the bare minimum, then do the Fard Ain program, module one. That's video two to 11. If you want to take it further, go to the foundations of certitude series, which I think is 28 or 29 uh, videos. It's about 30 plus hours of instruction. If you want to go further than that, well, we, we'd have to talk because we do have some private recordings, but they're not publicly available. About 40 plus hours where we covered Hashiyat uh, al-Tusuqi ala Umm al-Barahin, which is basically a commentary on Umm al-Barahin or it's a, it's a gloss over a commentary. You could also learn this book that I brought. If you want to simplify things, you could also learn this book, which is basically Imam al-Tahawi's creed, 
which is a very basic creed that a lot of Muslims are familiar with. If you want to study Maturidi creed at a good level, you could study this book, which is an introduction to Islamic theology. Basically, it is Imam Nur al-Din al-Sabuni's Al-Bidayah fi Usul al-Din. It's a fairly substantial book, and you should have a teacher for this, ideally. And, and the other books here are more advanced things. And I just brought them to show you that this is a very well-developed science, and it continues to be studied and taught and written about and explored, uh, explaining it in ways that are relevant and accessible to this generation, addressing new challenges to Iman. It's not a stagnant science, and it shouldn't be. So all of that is explaining the basic creed of Ahl Sunnah and Jama'ah in a way that also responds to the needs of the time. So again, if you just want to know your basic aqidah, you don't find yourself pressed with any of these challenges, just learn the basic aqidah in the Fardain module. Uh, study aqidah tahawiyah with someone. Uh, if you want to go further, you can do the uh, foundations of certitude. If you want to go beyond that even, there's other options. Right? You have the nasafiyah you could do. But that's really if you want to go deep into it and master it. But for the everyday Muslim, you need to learn your basic aqidah and work the rest of your life at living it. And we all need that. Right? It's one thing to believe in a formal way that Allah is your creator and provider, basic aqidah. It's another thing to live your life as if that's a reality and not to have your heart disturbed with things don't, when things don't go your way in dunya. Right? That's where aqidah has to be practiced. That's lifelong work. So I hope that answers the question, inshallah. And this doesn't address different objections. It doesn't address different claims. It wasn't meant to. My intention was simply to define the, the school, its place within Ahl-Sunnah, and how it developed like other sciences developed, and how the fact that you have complexity in a school doesn't mean that it's not from Islam. In other words, just because the Sahaba did not use these terms or explain it in this way doesn't mean it's not from Islam. It's just responding to the challenges that have arisen at different periods in Muslim history. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.